0: Hi, welcome to Displaced. This is the podcast brought to you from the IRC and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Displaced is the podcast to listen to if you're interested in the global refugee
1: crisis. I'm Ravi Guramurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. We are excited today to bring you an episode that we live taped at DevX 2018. DevX is an event that brings together development experts, practitioners, and policymakers to talk about development and how to improve it.
0: We talked to Kanaka Bal, who's the chief executive of Evidence Action. And Evidence Action is the organization that I look to for inspiration about how to bring ideas to scale, to take ideas from the test bed to actual live action on the ground.
1: Evidence Action is a truly inspiring organization that at the airbill center where ravi and i work we look to to think about how we identify new ideas and take them to scale to shape people's lives evidence action has over time served more than 200 million people through some of its life-saving interventions
0: and when i think about our day jobs it involves designing new interventions testing them rigorously and then scaling them. That is exactly what evidence action does. And in the first question that I post to Kanika, I ask her, how does she actually get the ideas in the first place? And how does she do this thing called prototyping, which is the idea of, um, instead of implementing something at a large scale immediately, doing it as fast and as small as possible?
1: Here's that conversation from DevX World.
2: It's such a pleasure to be here and to be here with all of you. Uh, the, you know, when we start, I think we look to a broad range of ideas. So we'll, we have partnerships with leading economists. We have partners with, partnerships with groups like IPA and JPAL who are doing such excellent work. Uh, we work with thought leaders across the community, with some of our donors like GiveWell, who are so knowledgeable about this space as well, and really want to create a wide funnel. So for us it's really about creating a portfolio approach so that we're looking at hundreds of ideas at the outset and then gradually figuring out which are the most promising, taking that down to 20 that we're willing to prototype. Um, But for, for me, what I have found is that if you have the portfolio, then you're willing to be as critical as possible. There's not that locking in effect of getting really wedded to an idea. So for us, it's starting with the funnel of being really broad. From there, we actually start looking at criteria that we think will ultimately make a program successful. Uh, So we'll look at what's the scale potential. Is this something that we think at scale will be reaching 100,000 people? Or is it something which has potential to transform the lives of millions, or tens, or hundreds of millions of people? We'll look at how cost effective it'll be. Uh, We'll consider What's the funding landscape? We'll look at the underlying evidence. So we'll do a really rigorous screen, even at those early stages, because while we love the idea of failing fast, it's hard sometimes to do something with 20 people. So we wanna make sure that we've done some initial due diligence before we even get to the prototyping stage.
0: In some ways, I think thinking about cost or even evidence is relatively easy at that early stage when will you think about scale and the potential for scale? That feels a little bit more complicated to project forward. How do you do that right at the outset?
2: So to be honest, we are five years old, and Beta, which is the innovation arm, is three years old. So I'll tell you what we've done, but also some of our hypotheses moving forward about how we're going to be doing that. So there are some interventions which inherently are potentially more generalizable or which are um, more turnkey. And so we're starting to look at You know, and so so things we'll look at is, is this something that we think is very unique to one or a set of environments? Um, We're having some very early conversations around incentives to avert child marriage. You could see that being something that's quite cultural or quite specific to a subset of of areas. Not to say it wouldn't be a fantastic thing to do, but just as we think about the potential scope. We look at, um, whereas other things where... Uh, doing, let's say, zinc and ORS treatment for childhood diarrhea. That is a program where the potential scope is enormous, given the challenges uh, with deaths from childhood diarrhea, which is the second biggest killer uh, of children. We look at things like what is the scope of the problem and what are the geographies that it's in? So a problem that has a very diverse and diffused impact maybe something where it's harder to get to scale versus something that's concentrated where 80% of the problem is concentrated in, let's say, five countries. Uh, We'll think about things like, what is the scope of the problem? Um, Right now, something, again, that's just been flagged for us very recently is the enormous number of preterm deaths which occur from something um, like syphilis in newborns. or when the mother has um, syphilis, it's oftentimes undetected But there's a great entry point via the antenatal clinics. Eighty percent of the women are going to antenatal clinics. So is that a point where we could do some very easy testing and treatment with a single-dose antibiotic? So there you inherently say, wow, this is something where the burden is massive. The impact is, you know, affecting hundreds of thousands of children. And there's this very clear sort of turnkey approach that we might be able to take again, early stage. But those are the types of things we'll, we'll look at.
1: So one of the things that I grapple with in this space is how to think about the biases in actual evidence generation for the interventions that we're looking at. Um, and to get a little more concrete, I think that something that uh, our audience members think about a lot is how the effects of what you're seeing in the literature, the evidence, can generalize, as you were mentioning, from stable settings to fragile states and conflict-affected states. So one of the things we know is that Over the past decade or two, there's been over 2,000 randomized control trials run uh, assessing the impact of these interventions, with less than over 100 of them run in fragile contexts. And so I oftentimes wonder about, particularly outside of interventions in the health space, how we can think about uh, generalizing from that evidence base and how we should think about what we're not even seeing because evidence is not being generated in those spaces.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and honestly, I think you guys have probably thought more about this than we have. I mean, what I just stated about the scale potential can actually cut against some of these very things that you're talking about, and I think we as a community need to say that, I don't have a clean answer, but maybe different groups specialize in different areas, and so um, I think as you, if there is a place where there's insufficient evidence being generated, I think we should ask ourselves, how do we create the incentives for mm-hmm. that that evidence to get generated? Can we, for example, work with funders who will say that if there are some really promising ideas, we're going to fund the prototyping and taking a scale? And so I think it's partly about saying, at the other end of it, how do we create those incentives? Because we don't want to just be doing the turnkey solutions. I mean, the counter to what I just said before is we we want to know where we see things that can get to scale, but we don't the, these the, the fragile settings, we want to be developing and innovating for those spaces as well. So I think it's how you create that ecosystem.
1: And one of the reasons that's related to this that I find it to be a tough ecosystem is because there's so few randomized control trials or such few evidence that There's a bias also towards the first ones that are coming out. And I think one of the things you see of the long arc of evidence generation is, you know, the first study shows high impact, and then the second study shows maybe a little less impact, the third study maybe even less than that. And over time, you start to see a general arc of what the program actually does um, on average. And I think about the challenges of um, bias towards just the first RCT that we find out there. From your vantage point at Evidence Action, how do you think about, what is a sufficient amount of data to then bring something into the portfolio?
2: So we think about it as a multi-stage process. And so, and this is very notional, but in my mind, when I think about our innovation process, I always have a funnel. So at the top, we'll have hundreds of RCTs, or hundreds of programs that we're potentially considering. And the prototyping stage, will have 20. And that's still at smaller scale. I assume that in the next phase, again, very notional, we may have five that sort of graduate with one or two actually becoming large-scale flagship programs. And so I think two answers to that. One is we assume there will be natural attrition, that the first study can be promising, but as you grow it, maybe the effects don't hold. Um, Maybe it just worked really well in a certain setting due to a certain set of circumstances. So we, we bank on that attrition. And I think the second thing is also to, part of what we try to bring, and it sounds like you certainly try to bring as well, is, is the understanding of how you take something and have that impact that held at smaller scale and get creative so it continues to hold as you scale, which then moves purely from an, an evidence into an implementation question. To give you an example, one of the programs, uh, there's a very rich evidence base with Pratham and others around teaching at the right level, that if you get students and teach them at the correct level, at the the right level that they're at, it can lead to improved educational outcomes. The question is, how do you do that in a cost-effective way? And because that requires volunteers or requires teachers to actually do that, so and motivated volunteers at that, because maybe you can find 100 motivated volunteers in a country, but can you find you know 1,500 motivated volunteers? So there, we've tried to bring innovation to that question. So a big challenge that countries are facing, in addition to the educational challenges, is youth unemployment. And so we're trying to actually harness that to help create a solution for the teaching at the right level. And so in Kenya, we've partnered with the Kenyan government's G United National Youth Service Program. They're providing the volunteers. The government is actually funding a large proportion of the program, and those are being deployed to actually do this teaching at the right level approach called Winning Start. That provides soft skills for the youth volunteers, it provides an employment history which can help get them employed, and it's harnessed enormous political will for the program overall. What that's doing is allowing us to do it a cost-effective way. But the innovation is actually around how do you have those effects hold at scale. So it's that creativity.
0: So the the funneling process that you talked about with 20 ideas at the top and um, fewer that you prototype and then even fewer that you rigorously test and then scale, Um, we've talked before about failure in this process. And how do we uh, encourage, celebrate failure while recognizing that failure when it comes to providing drugs to individuals to do with health could have a catastrophic effect, for instance, um, and might be unethical to, to test. So how do you handle failure in this whole process? And are there any good examples of uh, learning from failure?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think a lot about incentives. For me, it's actually a big question is to get to failure, you have to you have to align incentives to allow for failure. So how do you do that? I, I have found that um, there are certain mechanisms you can put in place that actually allow your yourself, your team, your partners to, if not embrace failure, we certainly try to embrace failure. We find it's oftentimes, you know, it's, it's challenging, but to... I mean, lots uh, of people who uh, embrace failure in the abstract. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So what mechanisms do we put in place to align for failure? One is the portfolio approach. If you if you have two things you're evaluating, it is really hard to let one or two of those go. If you have 10 or 15, that's very helpful. Two, we've created, um, and I'll talk about a specific example uh, where we did this, but we created a pre-policy plan where we basically worked with our partners um, in Botswana with a program that I'll speak about in a moment, moment to say, this is what failure, or this is what will be Results which we don't want to move forward with are a priori. And then here are other sets that we will consider that, you know, successes. Because what happens is that way, even you're in your own team, you don't end up moving the goalpost to say, well, this was close enough to what we thought was success. So getting that agreement, a simple framework was really, I think has been really critical for us. Third is you do need to align your incentives with your investors. Donors are, you know, they exert influence as as in all things where um, there's funding involved. And so we are really looking actively for angel investors, those who say that we can go to our board and and say that three out of the four programs that we supported evidence action for haven't moved forward, Mm -hmm. or that four out of four haven't, but here's what we've learned. So those are, I would say, sort of at the macro level, some of the things that we do to allow for failure.
1: The thing that we're starting to institute uh, at AirBell for our programs is exactly on that second one, where before every program that we launch, we do a survey of any of the staff involved, asking them, what do you think the impact would be of this? And what would be a failure or success? So at the end of the day, we're able to all collectively come together and compare what we actually see with what our expectations were as a way to essentially stage get ourselves. And I feel like it's a fantastic process in part because it doesn't allow you to move the goalposts as you said but also because it starts to move people to a mindset where they're just actually thinking about what failure actually looks like outside of you know, the operational challenges, the supply chain challenges, the motivation challenges, and really looking at impact in a, in a meaningful way. It also, I feel, gets people to think creatively about what are we actually going for? When you look at a lot of the evidence, and a lot of it's you, know, not, you know, not as fantastic as we'd like it to be, particularly in fragile states, as we were mentioning it's hard to quantify a lot of the things that we're looking for and hard to benchmark them, right? So how many jobs should we get people? How many lives should we save? Um, it's not always really obvious, and, and articulating this helps. Um, I want to switch us over to scale um, because this is a huge, huge part. What's scale for evidence action?
2: <laughs> well, so we're, we're reaching 280 million people today with Dewarming medications, clean water, our program no lean season with, with um, uh, subsidies for seasonal migration, soft loans for seasonal migration. So for us, it's at least millions of people reached. Uh, in some programs, it's tens or hundreds of millions.
0: And there's this narrative um, in the whole sector that there's been a failure to scale good things and pilotitis sets in where things don't get beyond that small scale. Do you buy that basic argument that there are plenty of good ideas but the problem is scaling them? Or do you think that actually some of those ideas are inherently flawed and not scalable in the first place because they're maybe complicated or too costly?
2: I think it's both, right? Um, <laughs> which is a bit of a, but, but I, I see the challenge with both. I mean, I think with beta, um, part of what we're trying to do is as we're evaluating the ideas at the early stages, trying to get a sense of, do we ultimately see that there will be a platform to scale? Um, I would say with, you know, school-based deworming, uh, the reason that that is by far our largest program, we're partnering with governments for reaching 275 million children um, across Asia and Africa. The, the, the sort of the, the seeds of that scale were in the initial idea itself, because there was, you know, evidence that deworming improved the livelihoods. Uh, over time of the children who received it and improved educational outcomes. But the, the, the innovation was really saying, how do we deliver it and delivering it via schools? Uh, because it's a quite broad-based um, intervention. And so that was really, I think, the innovation which allowed us to take it to scale. And so I think that was in the seeds of the idea itself, if that Did makes you sense. Were,
0: you were focused not on inventing a new way of achieving a, a given end, you were thinking about how you test that in a school context. So I think the analogy I use is we know that cash works, we know that immunization works, we don't need to necessarily invent new vaccines. Right. We just need to think about how do you get that to the most uh, fragile context to the last mile,
2: exactly. So, are,
0: are a lot of your is a lot of your work focused on the delivery system, if you like, rather than the the new products and services?
2: I would say so, yeah. And it's around the innovations around how do you deliver it. So there was the example that I used from Winning Star, where we're using the existing youth service um, delivery channel. There's a school-based platform. Now that we've used it for deworming, we're now we have the Indian government, which. Anytime you work in India, you have the platform for scale. We're working with the national government and 11 states across India with deworming. And so they've now said, well, can you help us do other child health interventions? Can we partner together on getting those to scale? And so we're looking at using that platform. What does that
0: conversation look like? So when you go and say, we've got this great idea. Very easy. (laughs) And I'm just thinking about my conversations with the Indian government over the years on various things. They're not the easiest conversations to have. How receptive do you find governments to uh, taking some of the innovations that you've developed to scale? And do you involve them early or late?
2: We involve them early. And so, well, I should say, depending on what the program is. So at this point, we have a very strong relationship with the Indian government. We have MOUs signed with the national government, with the state governments. The deworming program is their program. It is the Indian government's national deworming day. We stand behind the government who is from doing the program. And I think that is so fundamental because then they have ownership of it. And that's meant that, that they're the ones taking it to scale, uh, providing a lot of the funding. And we think it creates that pathway to, to scale over time as well and sustainability. And then once they've seen that, actually, and I've, I've actually, to be honest, never seen this in any other NGO, they've, they've come to us and said, we want to partner with, we, we want your help to do other interventions like this. So I think, you know, for for me, the other component of scale is how you engage with governments. Not all programs will go through national governments, but for those that do, really having the governments own it can, can make a huge difference.
1: Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter.com displaced. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com displaced. That's ziprecruiter.com slash P-L-A-C-E-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I'd love to hear your reflections on what you think some of the alternative non-state routes to scale are. And in particular, for those of us working on fragile states, Mm -hmm. we know that by 2050, half the world's poor are actually going to be in fragile or conflicted states where states don't necessarily have the capacity or capabilities to actually be the scaling partner or it may be more challenging to work with them. I think that this is top of mind for institutions moving into this area like the World Bank. Um, And so when you look at kind of the future and uh, think about the fact that there may not necessarily be that route. How do you think about what we, what we should find promising and what we should be investing in now?
0: And that's particularly important for displaced populations because if you're thinking about refugees that fled over the border, often um, a very capable state exists in Jordan or Lebanon, but they don't necessarily have the will to help those refugees because they don't want to make a welcoming environment. Or if you're talking about people fleeing internally, then within a civil war, that government is often uh, lacking the will or the capacity to help, or they may be part of the actual problem itself. So, we're really thinking about roots to scale when you haven't necessarily got that state as the partner
2: yeah, no that's a great question so you know I think then it just leads to the need to be creative right we know that I think there are sort of preferred alternatives for for scale um, but but I think in the and I think that'll very much depend. But with, with one of our programs, No Lean Season, we partner very closely Can with... Can
1: you tell us what No Lean Season is? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes,
2: of course. So No Lean Season, is... so so in a lot of areas, for example, in, in Bangladesh or Indonesia, you have the problem of seasonal poverty. So after the harvest, there's oftentimes a lean period where there are very few jobs for agricultural families. Um, caloric intake drops down dramatically. Uh, typically families will go down to two meals a day, primarily rice-based. And there had been a number of interventions to figure out how to bring jobs to those areas, and um, but there hadn't been uh, a lot of traction. So Mushfiq Mubarak, who's um, uh, a Yale economist who grew up in Bangladesh, was very aware of this challenge. It's called the, the manga season in the region. And he said, well, what if we actually help bring the workers to the cities where the jobs exist during that period, um, instead of trying to artificially create the the jobs in the rural areas. And so that's the genesis of No Lean Season. We originally started out saying that we would give the uh, member of the household $20 to a subsidy to get a bus ticket to the city where the vast majority found jobs. an In initial work that showed actually that that the families, every member of the family, ate an increased 700 calories per person per day during that season, uh, and we then were innovated, prototyped, and said, "What if we actually gave a soft loan?" We found out that repayments were actually quite high, and that but still had the same impact, and that allowed us to then reinvest the capital and make the program even more cost-effective. And so um, there, what we've said is Bangladesh is very well-known for its its microfinance institutions and a well-established one, RDRS, uh, already has a lot of the branches and arms to be able to do a lot of the operational on the ground work. So in that case, we've we've partnered. Uh, With other programs, we actually do direct implementation. and, And there, I would say that the thing that's been critical for us is just ongoing process innovation to keep thinking about how we make the program more efficient, uh, more cost effective, et cetera. And I can give some examples. Can
1: follow up on it? So new season is really interesting because it's happening at a moment in the sector where uh, cash is uh, increasingly espoused as the intervention that we should all embrace. And one reason is just because if it's better outcomes, it's cheaper, it has better impact, and Then a third piece is that it generates more autonomy. People get to use their cash however they want. And that's something that we fundamentally believe in. And no in season is interesting because you're essentially giving a type of conditioned cash. Mm -hmm. We're saying, we want to get you to the city to get jobs. And I would love to hear how you think about the trade-off between just giving cash that is more autonomy-enhancing or giving cash that's more conditioned to send people
2: down a certain path. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say that what you're doing is creating an incentive. And, and the way I think about this, and it's not at all scientific, is that I have a lot of inertia to do things that I know are good for me. Um, we all go do. Out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Whether that's going out and getting like a healthy meal. I think there was work out of, uh, maybe it was out of Stanford that showed that if you give doctors in that area um, Housekeeping vouchers; it actually improves their overall happiness and outcomes, even though they clearly have the cash to go and do it, but but they don't, right? And so, um, I think that you know, behavioral nudges, creating incentives for people to uh, do things, can be a useful tool in terms of just the the cold hard numbers. The uh, you know no-lean season is estimated to be about as five times as cost-effective as just giving cash. So I think that there are there's you know certainly fantastic. I I think the unconditional cash transfers um, have a really important place with things. I think there's also room for for conditional cash transfers. I don't know how you think about that. Well,
0: it gets you to a very difficult question about paternalism. Yeah, it does. The extent to which you are prepared to intervene and manipulate. yeah. Individuals to try and achieve better outcomes. Um, I don't have a very good answer to that, Me okay, that no ethical really. balance. I'm I'm, 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 If I'm reading the question
1: what's the challenge. <laughs> so I find this conversation happens frequently where you know economists are oftentimes leading the debate on cash, and they're like, yeah. well, this is both autonomy enhancing and this is what you want people to do, and then you have or. It's autonomy enhancing, and that itself is a normative outcome. And then you end up in a world where you're comparing normative outcomes to empirical outcomes, which are really hard to do, right? Like, how do you think about rights versus, well, you know, kind of additional caloric intake? And it's kind of where the conversation stops. Um, And so if anybody's trying to counter cash in their institution, make the normative argument. I
0: mean, the the sort of Richard Taylor argument, he he refers to it as libertarian paternalism, i.e., Um, you are nudging people in a particular direction but you are allowing them the choice to do something different if they so choose and you're potentially pushing them in a direction where they um, already want to go. So if I make a, a prior decision that I want to give up smoking and someone helps me to do that, then that feels acceptable. What doesn't feel as acceptable is if... I'm being tricked into to do something I never even expressly wanted to do, like save for a pension, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but just want to switch to a different question, which is about another dimension to scale, which um, I think is difficult, is when you take a small programme up to, uh, suddenly reach hundreds of thousands or millions of people, it changes the whole nature of that programme, and there are sometimes unintended consequences. So one example would be that if you educate children, and they uh, earn more in the labor market, that might work in a small scale. But if you suddenly educate the whole population, then you've got a, a, an abundance of people who now have their skills, and therefore the wage premium goes down. And, and economists talk about general equilibrium effects. And I'm interested in No Lean Season. If you go back to that program, what are the potential unintended consequences or general equilibrium effects from that? And are you trying to measure that and work out um, whether there, there is a course correction needed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's, as we think of the funnel, those are exactly the types of questions that we're looking at. So with No Season, you Season, know, we said, okay, well, this program, again, looking back at the original studies, seems to have all these great effects. What are the potential negative effects it could have? So just to throw out a few, one is that in the Sub-Saharan African context, minors and other migrant workers are actually, you know, a a key contributor to increased uh, rates of STDs, HIV-AIDS. Could we see health consequences? Uh, There were questions around... what are the impacts on the uh, source village wages when you have a number of, of individuals leaving? What's the impact on the destination city? Could you actually reach a saturation point whereby the wages in those areas fell because there are now so many rickshaw workers that you're displacing, for example, others who are having that job? So those are exactly the types of questions we seek to measure as we increasingly go to scale. And what we found is that... Um, the, the issues around health really weren't very prominent. Um, we have we actually interestingly found that wages, if anything, went up in the source village. Uh, not entirely surprising. You're reducing the supply of laborers. And for the most part, um, although I think evidence is still being generated, the, the workers are sufficiently dispersed that it doesn't seem to be having a, a major impact on the, the wages at the destination. But those are exactly the types of questions that I think are so important to address through this process.
1: One additional question that we grapple with at uh, AirBell and the IRC is how long we should let innovation processes kind of breathe for and um, and take before we kind of either graduate them or take them off the shelf. And uh, research has suggested that you know it takes an average of 17 years for evidence-based findings to then translate into uh, actual policy and practice, and the adoption rates are pretty low. And so you know. I th- one thing I think about is what are the expectations that we're setting ourselves up for in terms of when are we going to generate breakthroughs? How long is it going to take? And then what what does diffusion look like? And so when you think about your portfolio and your time horizons, what are your expectations for um, when programs are doing well and how long it takes?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So we're we're still figuring that out ourselves. I mean, I would hope that well, I think it's going to be a spectrum, right? Something which is very unusual or groundbreaking in sort of mechanisms, I think, could take longer because you're starting from the very early stages of, of evidence. There, I could see things. So, you know, some of, I think certainly no lean season, it was an earlier stage idea. Um, you know, that's been in beta three years. We're hopeful that we could graduate that in a few more years, one, two, three years. Um, and so... You know, I think it really depends. Um, but if I were to pin myself down to an answer, I would hope that you know, in five years we could see something graduate. I, I don't know how you think about it at, at IRC. You
1: should take a survey with all of your
2: staff articulating the time of so which you expected to. Because th- I could hear like three different voices telling me a different number.
0: <laughs> I mean, my reflection is that. Are- Actually, 17 years sounds very optimistic to me. I know in the in the environmental and energy field, wow. you're talking about 30-year transitions yeah. when new infrastructure comes into place. The only way that's been dramatically accelerated is when government regulates and funds it in a very big way. Mm. And again, come back into our context, where funding is fragmented, it's short-term, uh, and you don't necessarily have governments to deliver things to, to refugees. I think it's very, very hard to get to the kind of scale that you've got to uh, as quickly as you have. Um, so... I just want to ask you, with your portfolio now, you've got some fantastic programs that I think are uh, making a huge difference. What are the one or two ideas that are maybe just at a seed stage or interesting research papers that you think that could be our next deworming initiative or our next no lean season?
2: Yeah, so there are, some, there are a few different ones that, that I think are top of mind for me. One is the uh, our... our uh, we came out of Innovations for Poverty Action, IPA, and we're really excited about some work that has come out from IPA and some researchers in Zambia. <clears throat> so as you, as you know, stunting is a huge issue overseas. There is uh, 160 million children globally who are stunted in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Stunting rates are as high as 40%. And what you want to do to avoid that stunting, which has a lifelong you know, economic and education, some health impacts, is to get children properly nourished in that vital first two-year period. And there's just been, I've worked on the nutrition side previously. Addressing that is just, it's such a complex political and regulatory and implementation challenge. Um, And IP has done some exciting work, which shows that if you do something like put growth charts uh, in the households of families, where you show, you allow the parents to actually measure how the child is growing, are they on track, are they off, some aspirational med- um, messaging, a child you know, with a cap and gown growing healthily, um, and some very basic food information. Just that simple intervention can actually reduce stunting 22%, um, and for every dollar uh, invested can yield $22 in lifelong in- income. So that's really exciting. We're now talking to them, as as well as the researchers, about are there ways to partner to start prototyping this? So can we try this in different parts of Zambia, for example? Because the original study was done in a place with 43% uh, levels of stunting, so high levels of stunting. Does it still apply in other settings? What if we took it to Western Kenya and tried it out there? Would the results hold? We want to now start saying, what type of aspirational messaging will resonate the most Uh, If you show a a healthy, tall, strong, um, and well-known individual from that local area, does that send a message that this is something that's aspirational? If you you show uh, physical characteristics, someone strong who can be a great farmer, or if you show income and education outcomes, what what will resonate the most? Uh, What are different ways that we can, again, think about this platform? Is it community health workers who distribute it? Are there other nodes that we use to distribute it. So that's one of the ideas that we're really excited about.
1: Kanika Ball, thank you so much for joining thank us today guys. on Displaced. Thank you to DevX World 2018 and for everybody in the audience. Uh, feel free to go to Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or anywhere where you get your podcast to download Displaced. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you so you. much,
0: Kana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our team at the IRC is Alex Bandea, Catherine Long, and Ben Moskowitz.
1: And we are eternally grateful to our partners at Vox Media, Associate Producer Jelani Carter and Engineer Jarrett Floyd. A special thanks to Sonia Herrero for helping out with this week's episode. Our Senior Producer is Gold Arthur, and she never-endingly puts up with us, so a huge thank you to her, as well as Nishat Kurwa, who is the Executive Producer of Audio at Vox Media. And we are eternally grateful to our listeners as well, not just for listening, but for some of you holding us to account. This is a serious show. We talk about mass atrocities, we talk about displacement, we talk about human rights violations. And last week we made an error. We mispronounced the name of the town, Helena. We said Helena, but really it's Helena, 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 Helena. Sorry, guys, we messed up. We will do better. But thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for holding us to account. We want to keep hearing from you. You know how to get in touch. Drop us a note at at displacedatrescue.org. Thanks again, and we will see you next week when we will be sitting down with Jan Eglin. Jan has negotiated a number of incredibly important peace deals over the past 30-40 years and is currently the secretary general for the Norwegian Refugee Council. He is truly the warrior poet of humanitarianism and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I hope you tune in and listen as well.